Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion. Uh, we have an amazing guest today. She is the uh, president and principal of Brand Enchanting Media and the vice president of the board of directors of the Camden Business Association. Um, and so I wanna welcome our guest, Nichelle. But before I welcome Nichelle, I forgot to say hi to my co-host, UB. <laughs> UB, how are Hello. you doing? Mike, Mike's not here and all of a sudden, you just completely forget about me. Thanks a lot. Nina. I know it just it doesn't seem important <laughs> when Mike's not here to to do like introductions of the co-hosts. Well, he likes to come blasting in too, right? So you know he, he's always very boisterous, and it's me, Mike, and <laughs> <laughs> which he's off saving the world, by the way. So that's right. that's why yeah. he's not here today. It's but. all good. But let's let's get into our guest. So Nichelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. So uh, the first question we always ask our guests is a very genuine place of how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Right now, I'm vacillating between uh, mental exhaustion, you know, in this race to the bottom for the oppression Olympics that I feel like we're constantly in right now, as well as just, you know, dealing with being the parent of a senior in high school. Uh, my second son, it's his last year. So having to deal with those struggles of keeping him focused during a pandemic to graduate and get into college um, was a relief. We, he did get accepted into two universities so far. So that's a plus. Um, Congrats. Keeping his, thank you. Keeping his grades up and, and those types of things and figure out how helping him figure out his path um, for his his next level so there's some things I had to you know postpone because you know I'm not superwoman you know in, in and between you know this company some of the work I do with the business association and the community and just you know being the parent of uh, a teenager that is going through a transition from high school um, to college and you know it's it's a lot it's a lot, but, you know, I am still keeping a uh, hopeful and optimistic attitude about the future. Um, but yeah, this week was tough, you know, from a, dealing with various levels of generational, I like to call it dysfunction. I don't know if you've seen some of the things, you know, about Gen X needs to come save us from cancel culture, and I'm diehard Gen X. Uh, representing my my generation but you know sometimes there's disconnect you know with some of gen z and what we think is respect and manners versus you know how some of the next generation views it so i i've gone through a lot this week but like i said i'm still optimistic and and hopeful well i i really want to thank you for for joining us on the podcast this week and giving us your time um so I, cause that, that is a lot to ask of you when you have so many other things going on. Um, so thank you again for, for giving us your time. Absolutely. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and kind of, you know, what, what's your journey been to, to what you've been doing today as part of the Camden, New Jersey Business Association and, and the president of Brand Enchanting Media. How did you get there? What was that like? For sure, for sure. I, so just in terms of my journey on the business side of things um, and my professional side of things, you know, I started off 
um, as a film major and a communications major from community college, transferred to Temple um, University in Philadelphia, uh, was a radio, television, and film major, did a lot of writing, had a lot of internships. And the funny part is I only interned for a matter of maybe two or three days before I started getting paid gigs on production shoots um, just because of the work ethic that I had um, at that young age. So it's been, it's been kind of a journey to go from being on the more creative and production side of the media advertising and production industry and switching more to the business side uh, because frankly, uh, when I was doing a lot of production, young, I was young, was actually a young mother, uh, and my oldest may have been two at the time, um, coming out of college, and it was one day I worked for 22 hours straight, and I didn't go to sleep until 24, 25 hours later, um, so that that moment was the moment I decided, okay, I don't know if I can keep up with the whole production career path. I still want to be in this industry. I need to pivot. And I started pivoting and looking for more of the nine to five aspect. And that came through the world of advertising agencies. I was lucky and blessed enough to get my first gig outside of production and, and working on some great production shoots and with some great folks, um, you know, winning, you know, working on a team that won a, an award at Tribeca Film Festival and Sundance. So I, I have all that on my resume, but I was very lucky to get to work for a company called Darcy at the time, which is now known to uh, most of the world as Publicis and to cut my teeth and advertising on brands such as NyQuil, DayQuil, uh, some Procter & Gamble brands and, and some other large uh, brands. And, and being that traditional kind of madman environment on Madison Avenue, you know, as they call it um, in New York, but actually we were, we were downtown, on, not downtown, we were midtown, uh, close to Broadway, the office was. Um, you know, so from there, that's kind of where it started. I thought I would still work in commercial production on the agency side. Um, but turns out I started to have the chops for account management and strategy and, and being the person that not only knows the creative and the production side, but knows the, the business side and putting the both pieces together um, to manage branding, marketing, and, and advertising campaigns. And that kind of propelled me into having, you know, almost a 20-year career um, in advertising, 20-plus years, if you if you count what I did on the production side of things. And, and you know, working at shops mostly in New York and Philadelphia, um, as well as Chicago, um, eventually led me to a place where, you know, I, I wanted to be more of a principal at an agency, but then I started hitting those glass ceilings um, that women and minorities hit in the advertising agency. When I was an account director, my IM status used to always say 3% and people would ask me why 
because I was one of 3% of minorities that were director level or higher in the advertising agency industry. And that was total. That wasn't just 3% of African-American or, or, or black. That wasn't just, you know, it was total of all of the uh, BIPOC community. So um, that was something that I wanted to change. Um, and I think that's always been in me to be some sort of change agent. I've been, you know, volunteering or doing community work since, you know, I was in junior high at some point or, you know, in some fashion uh, across my career. So, you know, even growing up, you know, I was president of the Temple Perg chapter. So change which is the public interest research group, which is the, you, the, a division of US PERG for those that don't know. So creating change um, that's more equitable and, and fair and conducive to a better society is something that's always kind of been one of my passions. And so I kind of translated that over to what I did with my career. Um, and so after going through so many years of making money, for other people and either not getting the promotion or, or, or not getting, you know, having that sponsor because you need a sponsor in this day and age um, and seeing other people uh, benefit from the fruits of my labor um, and not get the recognition and sometimes be met with animosity because I did my job too well um, led me to, you know, have that quote unquote coming to Jesus moment where people had already said I should just start my own agency and I finally did in 2016 and we'll you know now it's five years later we'll be five next month and that's what brought me to starting my own agency that's built on the foundation of uh, diversity equity and inclusion here at Brand Enchanting Media. And, and where like because like, I'm interested in you, you mentioned, you know, the volunteering and the things that you did growing up. Um, but where did that come from, that, that change, passion for change and to kind of stand up for yourself? Because I think with, you know, the, the exhaustion you were talking about, uh, I, you know, for a lot of people from, uh, you know, underrepresented groups, marginalized groups, never, never got taught how to how to accept st um, status, right? Or to to step up and, and fight for themselves. They just never had that opportunity. Um, and so, where did where did that come from? Because I think that's so important. And what a lot of people don't realize, you know, I think a lot of people just think, oh, well, they're just not trying hard enough. No, they never learned how to to stand up for themselves, how to take risks for themselves. And to your point, like you need a sponsor. Yeah, because they didn't have that. So where did right. that come from for you? Um, well, for me, it really came, you know, from folks like my my mother and my grandmother, to be honest with you. My grandmother, uh, more or less, you know, she's all, she was all a 411, rest her soul. Um, she passed when she was 94 uh, a few years ago. Um but she was all 4'11", um, but she was straight, no chaser. But at the same time, she was the kindest person, whether someone needed help in the family, whether, you know, it was a friend of the family or a neighbor 
Um, she never not took care of people. If they were homeless and needed to come stop at the house to get a meal, she'd have it all packed up for them. You know, so growing up watching her take care of people. And my mom's a little feisty one too. I'm, I'm the tallest one out of all of them. But growing up, you know, watching, you know, my grandmother just do the right thing by people without being asked or told because, you know, she had that unconditional love no matter what your circumstances were or how other people looked at you you know, she always made sure that, you know, even if she was upset with you, she's still going to make sure you're fed. Even if she was disappointed in you, she's still going to make sure you got a warm place to lay your head. So that's kind of just been organically ingrained into my DNA by the nature of the women that came before me. My, my aunt was very outspoken, you know, one of the few at that age in my family that went on and get her PhD, huge educator, wrote a book about, you know, some of the, the life living in the low country, which is, you know, the uh, South Carolina uh, area and, 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 you know, the Gullah Geechee uh, roots that we have. So, you know, having those type of women that were always outspoken and, and weren't going to let, you know, life kind of beat them down and assert themselves. I'm used to seeing assertive women. So that's pretty much how I was raised is around a, a group of assertive women, you know, from my, my grandmother to my mother, you know, to my aunts. Michelle, I want to talk about um, the, the advertising work you've done for 20 years. Cause uh, you know, you worked at Publicis, which is one of the big ones. I actually used to work for Y&R. Mm-hmm. way back in another lifetime. And actually, I also used to work at the Perks, so I'm familiar with okay. the sides of the work that you've done here. But uh, regarding the, the, the advertising industry, one of the things that really resonated with me that you said was that as advertisers, we have a great responsibility to do no harm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, why you came to that? And also just like, what are examples that you've seen in your experience where you didn't see people doing that. For sure. Um, so, uh, and I say this all the time and it's so cliche, but I'm such a huge, like, you know, Marvel DC superhero fan, not a comic nerd in a traditional sense, but just growing up, um, you know, that Spider-Man's Uncle Ben always saying, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. It's true. We have the power as uh, folks that work in the media communication and advertising industry to put out messaging and influence masses from hundreds to thousands to millions to even billions of people in one fell swoop. That's a lot of power when you're able to put out advertising or messaging or anything across the airwaves, um, whether it be TV, internet, radio, uh, print ads, you, you have a responsibility when you have that power to start putting things out into the universe um, for society and culture to consume 
So whatever you're feeding the universe is what the universe is going to kind of grow into. And what I mean by that, if, if you're feeding stereotypes, that's what's going to shape and inform uh, opinions and thoughts and feelings. If you're feeding um, hateful rhetoric, that's going to do the same. But if you're feeding, um, and, and that's where the harm comes in, because now we are essentially poisoning society with negativity. And so we have a responsibility, those of us that work in media, <clears throat> marketing, uh, entertainment, film, uh, advertising, we have a responsibility to not do harm to the society and the culture and to our consumers. We are supposed to be influence them in a way that actually enhances their life, not takes away, that doesn't add stress. You know, our goal should to make people think, make people smile, make people feel positive energy versus uh, negative, versus fear, versus angst, versus stress. You know, we're, su we're supposed to be the, you're, whether you have a product or a service, the whole goal is to be the stress reliever. You know, if you have a food product, the goal is to feed a belly and to taste good. You know, if you have a software product, the goal is to streamline and make someone's workflow easier. Um, so that's important and that's important work. And with that, you know, we joined up and with the Conscious Ad Network, which, you know, is based on their principles uh, that align with how I formed Brand Enchanting Media, which is, you know, diversity, um, informed consent, uh, hate speech, children's well-being, uh, avoiding fake news, um, and, anti and, and being anti-ad fraud. So the, the six, those six principles need to go across, you know, not just the advertising industry, but all industries uh, that deal with public media consumption. And, and that's really important. And the only way um, to affect change is if you kind of base it in principle, um, in purpose, that's going to actually benefit and enhance and help evolve society and not take away from it. Do, do you all have discussions as it relates to that about, uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier, I think, and more comfortable just, just speaking from kind of how our brains work and things like that to, to just sort of go along, right, with what you read. And, and so, I, you know, for the majority of people, you know, they, they read, a, you know, these, you know, a lot of the fake news stuff or these hate-inducing uh, pieces or advertisements or whatever it is, and they just go along with it. And so how do you, you know, what have you all talked about that as far as, you know, yeah, there's this responsibility and we've got to be better at what we're putting out. But at the same time, is there a responsibility, um, you know, for, for people to actually do a little bit of the work to, to, you know, to say, is that really fake? Is that really true? What I just yes. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is now that's that's where <laughs> parenting education comes in. How do we teach our children discernment? 
um, and and the ability to have free thought, but also the ability to discern between inaccurate things and things that may just be anecdotal or opinion based. Um, and that really goes along with how you're being raised. Um, but there's a balance in that because you can question, you know, right now what we're finding is the balance has been tipped where we're getting so much more conspiracies because people have taken that discernment and turned it on its head and coming from a place of question everything, which I was that child, I question everything. But at the same time, I think that whole notion of questioning everything has gone totally off the rails um, when you're starting to question things that can be provable facts. So there's a, a, a level of education. There's also an aspect of mental health and wellness that plays into people being susceptible to fake news and information. A lot of times, uh, mental health issues or emotional struggles can trigger these spirals of folks getting into some of these conspiracies or fake news. So it's a very complicated issue, but it's, it's not something that particular issue is something that has to be taught. It's something that has to be talked about. Um, and then, you know, when people have lost trust in media and now we're being oversaturated because everyone can pretty much put out any content um, and now you have to police it and, and then you have to worry about the bad actors that are putting out content, the scammers, the, the hackers um, that are using it for bad means, using it to, to undermine governments using it to steal people's identity and to to scam them out of money. I mean, it, it's just so, so many layers to dealing with that issue that goes all the way from how our educational system and, and how we, we are teaching our children and the, and, the, and the truths and the false, the truths as well as covering or, or whitewashing some of the truth from our textbooks, so things don't align when you actually may see them on a different medium. Um, and it's getting that consistency of truth um, and making sure that we have that across the board. It's, it's a very complicated issue um, in helping people, um, you know, elevate their discernment to understand that, you know, some things can be proven. Some things cannot. Some things are just theory. How do you recognize those things? So, you know, not everything is a conspiracy and not saying, you know, that there haven't been some nefarious actors in the world. However, at this point, we get information at the touch of our fingertips. Some things are easily to prove true and people still refuse to acknowledge that. And that's when you start going into 
the world of what is their emotional state, their economic state, their mental state. Why are they so susceptible um, to these conspiracies? And, and, and don't even know that they're being targeted. You know, there was a couple of documentaries out about some of the election stuff. And we know for a fact <clears throat> that African-Americans that did not believe that their votes didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, counted, were targeted. They were targeted online with more information, with more conspiracies about their vote not counting. Now, obviously, after watching this election, we know that's not true by a long shot. We know by the teachings of John Lewis and the things that he fought for. We know that our vote matters. We know our vote is a gold mine in the African-American community. Um, but it took a lot of work to deprogram people and to get them on board with what many of us knew, um, but a lot of people didn't believe. So that's a, that's a very challenging and layered situation um, in helping people to break this whole cycle of falling you know, for fake news and, and building trust and, and making sure we're doing our due diligence to be truthful and honest and transparent. When you lack transparency, you leave a hole open for people to fill it in with whatever they want to based on their own preconceived thoughts and notions. So it's very challenging. It's very challenging. I wanna uh, pivot the conversation to uh, some of the great work that you're doing at the local level. Um, one of the, I'm, I'm gonna throw out another fact that you gave us um, was that we can add $8 trillion to the economy if we end discrimination. And you're doing some really amazing things uh, in Camden. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like how, you know, where did that, does not the idea of adding $8 trillion to the economy or that fact come from? And like, what does that mean? What is the power of that? Yeah. So that really comes from the economists. There's dozens of reports about how lack of diversity, equity, inclusion across the board in business, in banking, in housing, all of that is perpetuating into that $8 trillion, whether, uh, you know, it's Forbes, uh, Brookings Institute has a, a few reports that, that have those stats in there. So we've known for several years, maybe a decade, um, from companies that have led the way uh, early on adding more diversity to their boards or to senior leadership or to the C-suite um, that having diverse thought and diverse talent at the table in any business setting yields dividends. So what we've been doing um, in my role as the vice president of the Camden Business Association is not just championing, championing that idea in terms of, you know, just the, the bottom line, but it's really about economic justice. Um, when you start galvanizing people to really go after economic justice, that's usually when you get the most pushback, to be honest with you. People will easily 
do performative DEI efforts to say, well, look, we gave more uh, black people a job. We gave more Latinos a job. We gave more this a job. We gave, you know what I mean? They're, they're quick to do that because that's easy. But equity is really what's needed. Equity, because we have years of loss of equity. We have things that happen that have created the economic environment that people of color people of color live in today from the past that that you know whether it would be uh burning down black wall street in greenwood tulsa oklahoma or some of the other economic centers that were burned and bombed and a little less known so it's really about economic justice and even if you go back to the early 1800s um, since I have a lot of family from South Carolina, I'm a kind of a geek and always reading the history that deals with politics. A lot of the first um, black politicians were in the 1800s and they were in South Carolina. Um, to be honest with you, the whole, the whole notion of 40 acres and a mule did not apply to the entire United States. That was something that was done in the Southeast and it only applied to the black Americans and the, the slaves, the enslaved uh, society that was there at the time. Are we blessed in my family that we actually do have acres? My, my great, great grandfather was a sharecropper. So between our family, we have about 50 or 55 acres in South Carolina that's split between my grandmother and her siblings and then passed down to the descendants. And we still have that. There's like two or three houses on there. We rent part of the property out for someone to go grow trees and cut them every year. But, you know, there's a lot of history that goes on into economic justice and how so much of that equity was lost. Um, and I brought up some of the first black politicians because as we started to get equity, it caused fear. And because of that fear within the white community during the 1800s, they started taking those elected seats back and giving them to white men. They started cutting deals like, look, if you stop giving, you know, between the, the at the time, the Dixiecrats and the Northern Republicans and conservatives at the time, the Dixiecrats said, hey, if you stop giving uh, power and equity and electing uh, black officials, you know, will get you more votes and get you more power. So they kind of, you know, that that kind of paved the way for how the parties flip flop, which you see today. But it also paved the way for and so many more things that we can go on on for hours for a need for economic justice, because that has been corroded over generation, over generation, over generation to you see now we're in a place like the state of New Jersey, the average wealth of a white family is, you know, 250, 300 K and the, the average wealth of a black family is anywhere from like three to eight K wow. it's, it's, it's disturbing how generational wealth, has been siphoned off people of color over these past decades. And so what we're doing now is trying to recoup some of that back. Camden is 94% black and brown population, 94%. So we didn't have to come from a place of let's just give black and minority businesses uh, 
contracts or, or sourcing for goods and services. Let's just make sure it's local Camden businesses. If you're here, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're uh, uh, Latina, whether you're whether you're a veteran, whether you're LGBTQ owned business, if you're a small business in the city of Camden, we want to make sure that you can uh, have a leg up. You have a you have a pathway to participate in the economics of this city as well as be the job creators in 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 our county in Camden County. Um, which is Camden City and the surrounding towns in Camden County, small minority businesses account for almost 60% of the jobs, over half of the job creation. But yet we always look to these large corporations to create jobs. In New Jersey alone, micro businesses with 20 people or less create 60,000 plus jobs a year. Huh. Isn't that amazing? Like that, that's in, in, that, that, yeah, people uh, people just don't see that, right? It, it kind of going back to maybe you know marketing and advertising, right? Like people aren't told that story; they just don't know that that opportunity exists. I None. Feel. None. So we've been working for the past couple of years on on our advocacy plan at the city, county, and local level um, for this by Camden ordinance, which gives uh, which states that 30% of all the city of Camden and any city of Camden agency um, procurement for goods and services, whether it be a contract or uh, food catering or toilet paper or cleaning supplies, goes to Camden small businesses. And so we went and passed first reading unanimously. And we have three of the city council members sponsoring it. So um, shout out to Councilman Fuentes, Councilman Karstarfin, and Councilwoman uh, Sheila Davis for being the sponsors with full support of the mayor um, and, and the rest of city council. So we go into second and final reading next year, uh, excuse me, next month in April. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks in about three weeks. Uh, and then 10 days after that, um, within that 10 day time frame, the mayor will sign that into city law and we're not reinventing the wheel. Other municipalities have already done this. We're trying, we're just trying to get our city up to speed across the bridge in Philadelphia. They already have a, a very robust, what they call LBE local business enterprise program, where if you bid on a contract there, if you don't have a local business involved, you might not even be able to bid. So Pennsylvania has different laws than New Jersey um, at the state level that allows them to mandate that. A lot of times we have to do it as goals um, for small and minority participation, but we were, because we're only doing it by zip codes and we're not doing it by um, group, uh, meaning, you know, gender or or ethnicity, um, we can allot to a, a local business um, program. And this is going to be a big step for the community. Um, and then the work begins to make sure that our businesses have the capacity um, to answer the need for goods and services. So it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal for the city. Um, Congratulations. I mean, that's, thank you. Thank you. I mean, just, yeah, thank you the, the, for everything you're doing. I mean, this, I think this conversation is so enlightening in a lot of different ways. Um, and I, I really hope that 
the, the, you know, the audience takes that away, you know, that there's, there, there's hope, it sounds like, you know, underlying this conversation, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of movement in the right direction. Um, so yeah, Nichelle, thank you for, for being here with us today. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I enjoy talking to you guys. You too, you too. And good luck with everything. And, um, you know, thank you all for continuing to listen in to the Choose Inclusion podcast. As always, go to chooseinclusion.com and uh, look and listen for for more amazing guests. And um, yeah, just thank you for being here. Take care, everybody.